0: The Platforming Our Artists podcast series is supported by Torch as part of the Humanities Cultural Program. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of our Chameleon Platforming Artists podcast and we're super happy to have Dr. Rosa Andujar here today with us. Uh, Rosa has been pwah, part of Medea from the start of 2018 uh, and has little I don't know whether she appreciates quite how much she is a completely foundational pillar in everything we do. I know I speak for Fran here when when I say that I I think every conundrum we've had in the last three years with the production has always been saved by something that Rosa says or does. So thank you very much Rosa for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me and for those kind words. (laughs)
0: Let me tell our (laughs) listeners a bit about who you are. So Rosa, Deputy Director of Liberal Arts at King's College uh, where you teach in liberal arts and classics departments. But you are, in fact, a native New Yorker, as I'm sure our audience can hear. Uh, and you have two uh, BAs, one from Wellesley College and one from Cambridge, and then your MA and PhD from Princeton. So you've very much been educated both here in the US. Uh, and you've published widely in Greek tragedy, which is ooh, tragedy, which is your focus. Uh, the Greek trilogy of Lewis Alfaro is uh, a book that we certainly have, have spoken about. We were lucky enough to be at a book launch for... Um, uh, and you've also published twice last year with Greeks and Romans on the Latin American stage and you're currently writing Playing the Chorus in Greek Tragedy which is something that we're going to be talking about slightly later on in the podcast. But I think the first question uh, from me is classics, two BAs, what's what's the story with with your getting into Ah. classics?
1: Well, it's a funny old story. Um, I so yes, yeah, so I I I have had I guess I've been educated on both sides of the Atlantic, but I my journey first began in the U.S. I mean, I went to college or university, um, uh not that long ago, let's just say, but, um, but essentially like, like many other students, um, I had no idea what I wanted to major in. So in the U.S. Um, colleges, universities, are, it's a four-year uh, degree and um, basically it's halfway through your second year that you declare a major. Um, but what that means is basically you're committing um, a certain proportion of, or, more, or at least half of your, um, of your, your modules, your courses, um, to be in that one subject. And um, in my first year, I mean, I arrived at Wellesley actually wanting to be a math major.
0: Yeah, I saw Um, French and math. (laughs) Which I yes, did not but, know at all. Were, were your yeah. minors that well? Well, spent.
1: my my mom's a math teacher, so she has worked in the public school system, public state school system, for those of yes, you who are listening the state in
0: side. New York
1: City. Um, and she's a math teacher, and you know, like many other kids, I saw myself in the you know in the footsteps of my of, you know my parents. I saw myself. I mean, I was very attracted by the world of education. I really believed in making a difference in people's lives, and so, um, and I was also very good at maths or math. I should they should say in the U.S. without the. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I did AP calculus in high school, um, which is a big deal. No, um, and I I did well. And I wanted, I I was just thinking that, you know, uh, I wanted to continue my pursuit of mathematics. It was natural math. But in my first year at Wellesley, they were encouraging us to take, they had these classes called first year seminars, um, which were specifically for first years. um, And they had all kinds of different topics. And there was one class um, that uh, sort of, you know, called to me uh, and the name was comedy old new and ever since and now I should tell you I was also taking things like linear algebra and physics and all these other sort of hardcore classes so um, I decided that you know I was going to college I was going to university and I was gonna you know I was gonna take advantage of you know the full sort of liberal arts curriculum and this one class said that we were going to be watching Monty Python so I said I am going to college or going to university and I'm gonna watch tv and get credit for it (laughs) So we actually ended up not watching Monty Python, but instead we um, were reading all this stuff about old comedy, you know, sort of ancient comedy, Aristophanes, Plautus, and every, you know, all these other sort of comedic traditions um, ever since. And it was amazing. I, I love, I've always loved drama. Um and sort of studying it properly. I mean, I guess in high school we had done a bit of Shakespeare and a bit of this and that, but um, I, I really enjoyed it. And so soon enough, I mean, well, you were encouraged um, to basically have one of the professors of your, you know, of your first year classes to become your first year mentor. Um, and so I sort of chose this one professor. This is someone who's in, uh, in, the, in the Wellesley Classics Department. And soon enough, I was, you know, <laughs> convinced. They were like, they said, you know, if you uh, like this stuff. Um, in translation. You're going to love it in the original. And soon enough, I was, I found myself in an introductory ancient Greek class. And now, you know, years later, here I am.
0: (laughs) That's that's quite the journey. I mean, it's also always incredible as someone who very much went to choose their degree at the age of 17 and was committed to it, whatever happens, to hear of a much more enlightened process across the pond as to what on earth you should be doing. Uh, and certainly not having to decide that until the age of, what, 20, rather than at the age of 17, which makes a bit more sense. You then went to do your your MA and PhD uh, after coming to Cambridge for a, for a quick couple of years, King's College, Cambridge. What did you sort of, I mean, what was that process, PhD in Princeton? Um, what did you specialise yeah. in, obviously? well...
1: <laughs> yes, I decided to continue with classics is, I guess, the, the, the short answer. So, I mean, I and I should, I mean, I should probably add that as an undergraduate, I also wavered between, I mean, for a while, I was a double major with math and classics. Um, but I had, I'd learned both Greek and Latin at university, which put me at, at a disadvantage for graduate school. So for a while, I was wavering between what kind of life you I wanted. say
0: disadvantage for graduate school.
1: Well, because I'd learned, you know, so yes, because the thing is when you apply for a PhD program in classics, um, and this is the case I think in, in either here in the UK or in the US, you, um, you know, people really want to see how much background you have, how much training you have in the ancient languages, because it's a core component of sort of any major subfield, any major sort of engagement with the ancient world. So I learned both Greek and I, I mean, I, you know, this is the other thing too, that um I mean, in this country, um, it is possible to learn. Um, I, I guess if you, if you apply to do a, a Classics BA, I think in most cases, you have to have an A-level. In at least Latin. The Cambridge
0: four year course, um, I think, is the only major
1: exactly. course. Exactly. There, are, there apply. are some exceptions where yeah. you can do a four year course for, you know, sort of the languages from scratch. But um, in the US, I mean, they teach these classes regularly. And there's, I think, in, in my experience, um, I don't know if things have changed, but most of the people who were classics majors or at least classical civilization majors learned or encountered Greek and Latin at university for the first time. Um, and so, but for a while I was doing this crazy double major thing. Um, and then the major in math became a minor after I went to Greece. Anyway, I was still flirting with this idea of, you know continuing um, sort of my, my educational journey in this surprising new world of classics. Um, and I was just advised if I, if I was thinking of graduate study that I should really spend some time in England, <laughs> mm. uh, in Cambridge or Oxford to do, um, to continue sort of with my pursuit of classics. And so I came, I decided that Cambridge was a better place than Oxford back then, (laughs) I'm not gonna comment anymore. Um, So I came here and then I decided I liked it. And so I decided I wanted to continue with it. Um, But for me, I wanted to return back to the US because again, the different systems. I mean, in the US, um, when you are accepted into a PhD program there's a built-in MA degree and you don't have to declare your dissertation topic until much later so there's there's a period basically in which you're still doing coursework um and not necessarily in your subfield but still in all these different areas um you know a- about the ancient world so for me it was a, it was important for me to continue sort of filling in gaps or, or, or places that i things that i thought were gaps in my sort of classical education um so yeah so i after two years in england i went back um to the U.S. and did my M.A. and Ph.D. So that's it's basically I mean all together I think it was eleven years of higher education. Is that right? Ooh, that's a
0: lot of higher. Education. <laughs> which is a lot. Which I, is I a lot. I was very much done after three, and I'm I'm very glad at that.
1: Good for um, you. <laughs> I think <laughs> but, I was just a little bit bullheaded.
0: I mean, what you've done with with your incredible, uh, numerous educational accolades is not just academia, but also a huge amount of theatre and and um. Uh, as as we mentioned at the start, you've just worked with Lewis Alfaro. Those of you who don't know who that is, absolutely go find out who that is. And and uh, you know it was a big sort of uh, proof that the work we're doing is is not as isolated uh, at all uh, as as some I think assume it is. Thinking about classics in a diverse way, and indeed Medea uh, in a diverse way. You just worked on on his book. Um, And you've you had a close link, uh, I can see from 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 your bio, you've had a close tie with theatre since 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 Princeton itself, I would love to hear about sort of this relationship that you have with with uh, modern theatre in the ancient world and obviously the work you're doing with pioneers like Alfaro in, in, in making it relevant.
1: Yeah, well, um, so as I said, I mean, one of the things that first drew me to the ancient world was drama, although in that case it was comedy, but I've always, I've always loved theater and I think um, sort of my, I think my passion for the ancient world kind of increased when I started properly studying um, Greek drama and Greek tragedy in particular um, and I should say I mean I love the ways in which I mean th- there are multiple interpretations to Greek tragedy I mean, you can approach it from all kinds of perspectives from political historical um, you know psychological I mean there's all and, and, and you know there's all these ways in which you can approach it but also the story that do- doesn't just end or I mean it maybe yes it begins in antiquity but it sort of continues and there are all these sort of modern adaptations so I've always been attracted um, and drawn by you know the multiple ways in which you know sort of artists nowadays continue to kind of of um uh experiment or you know just put on different versions of these plays um so um i should say so actually before princeton when i was at cambridge i um, there was an opportunity to take part in the uh, they have a, a a greek play a play that they that they perform in ancient greek every three years um and i've never acted before believe it or not <laughs> no i've never acted before i i i always loved watching, um, uh, you know, uh, and going to the theater, but there was an opportunity to to take part in this play, and I auditioned for it, and I ended up in the chorus, um, which meant it was basically I think we did it for was it five days I think we did two performances um, two performances a day for five days all in ancient Greek. That's a heavy, Um,
0: heavy program.
1: Yes, um, yes. And it was the first week of term, of course. So that meant that as soon as I started that term, I was already a week behind. Already on the back But it didn't matter because everybody, you know, everybody saw the Greek play and they were all so amazed. And no, but um, but what was really interesting about that too was, um, uh, you know, obviously the process started much earlier because we had to be trained in, uh, in the course, especially in Greek meters, we had all these sessions um, with folks like James Diggle, um, and Anthony Bowen, who would, you know, teach us how to pronounce, and, you know, (laughs) all all these meters, and there, there were some people in the production who, um, had no ancient Greek, um, but that was fine, because someone actually transliterated all the Greek, and then we had all these recordings, and we had all these ways of sort of living this language, and for me, it was an incredible experience, um, and since then, you know, wherever possible, I basically found, you know, if there was an opportunity to get involved in a live production, um, I took it, so when I was at Princeton, um, uh, uh, they were putting on um, a play. Uh, this is um, Lisa Peterson and Dennis O'Hare. Um, I think they, 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 had, they had this production of an Iliad, a one-man Iliad. Um, and I think at that point they had premiered it elsewhere, but they were taking it to the McCarter Theatre in Princeton um, and they were looking for someone to act as kind of like consultant. I think I was officially a Greek language consultant because there was a couple of points in the play where um, Uh, you know, the the guy was reciting some ancient Greek. Um, So they were looking for someone to kind of be around and sort of advise on various things. And and people in the department sort of recommended me. um, uh, Actually, I'm wondering why. Uh, Well, anyway, for whatever reason, I was recommended. I I think it was, you know what, because I think when I was at Princeton, also, um, I would, I spoke about my experience on stage, you know, on the stage, and I did do some recordings for them, um, where I sort of recalled my, <laughs> all this extensive training in Greek choral meters. <laughs> um, but not just that, I think also before that, I should say there was another project um, that um, Peter Meinig, um organized. This is, he's someone who's, he's a, a, he's at NYU and he runs the Aquila Theater. And he had this whole big grant from the National Endowment of the Humanities called Page and Stage. And it was a way of involving scholars, bringing scholars into the pub into major public libraries, um, sort of engaging with the, you know, the general public and offering free books, and running, you know, so the scholar would run um, these reading groups, and then there was like a big performance um, that the Aquila Theater did in each library. Anyway, so there was this whole program, and I had been involved in this program as the um, scholar for the Newark Public Library, So I think it was after that experience that I was then recommended to become the language consultant because I had already done some sort of public facing work um, involving sort of performances, um, uh, you know, the ancient world or or just generally translating sort of aspects of antiquity to a general public. Um, So. So, yeah, so these were extra opportunities. I mean, I didn't really. And in fact, I mean, not that I was discouraged from doing them, but um, it was, I think I, there was an impression then that, you know, this kind of work was taking away, you know, from my, my PhD work. Yeah, I think we um, said, and it, my serious yeah. academic work. And for me, it was really such a joy, because the thing is, it's not just that It's it, it was obviously a chance to think through, for me, I mean, intellectually thinking through various aspects of performance and thinking through the import of some of these texts Um, to a general public, I mean, that's always been, I've always had these questions in my head. And so to have a chance to work, um, you know, to work with people and to sort of translate some of this material and um, obviously while, you know, while I guess facilitating artists' vision (laughs) to make this work um, more public facing, it was great. So so I had all these experiences basically. um, And I should say that all these experiences also helped me. I mean, when I ended up moving to the UK, there was a a research fellowship that that came up at UCL, Um, they wanted someone to work specifically in Greek literature, um, but, uh, and they could work in any area of Greek literature, but they wanted that research fellow to work with the UCL classical play. So it was a whole new research fellowship that came up, and there was this opportunity, and for me having had all these, all these other experiences um, meant that um, when I, I mean, I applied for that for that research fellowship and i ended up getting it and i think it was because i also had in addition to obviously working on greek drama working on all various aspects of greek literature i had some practical and real life experience sort of <laughs> translating that <not> translating <laughs> in a metaphorical way into you know, some of the, some of this work um to the general public um, so i guess i do have a long-standing track record of getting involved in performances and thinking about how some of these plays and some of these texts um, from the ancient world you know, how they might work or how they might be relevant to a public today.
0: And you, as I said, you know, you you continue to do that very much up until last year, but also what's so interesting about specifically the work with Alfaro, but, you, you know, yourself, you sit on, uh, um, as an associate editor for, for Greek literature at the American Journal of Philology, but you also sit on the editorial board, board for two Brazilian classics journals. And obviously, Alfaro's work is very much based on the Chicken X experience. In it of, of, and he adapts the plays uh, to think about, to use them as a means to think about that. And that's obviously the trilogy that you just edited. Um, your 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 American and Hispanic identity is a core part of often how you're interacting with both your academic life as the editor of these journals, but also the, th- the theatre work that you're doing alongside that.
1: Yes, I mean, I should say absolutely. I mean, one of the joys I think of, uh, for me, of sort of, I guess, I, my, my, my academic journey in the last few years has been um, really kind of expanding or thinking about, again, the import of antiquity um, or the ways in which antiquity um, has uh, I guess, I don't wanna say influence, but I wanna say the, the ways in which antiquity has kind of cropped up in all kinds of, um, let's say unexpected places. Um, and for me, I mean, uh, it's, it's a little bit complicated because basically there are these ways in which Greco-Roman antiquity has, um, I think informed, uh, let's say Latin American national and sort of cultural structures. Um, theater is, a, is an easy way. I mean, there's a lot of places that, that um in the 20th century or you know sort of in in more modern history when they're looking to sort of start a theatrical tradition um and this is the case in lots of places across the world um they start thinking or you know they experiment with the original with the greeks um and so i had been aware of um various adaptations um this is when i was a graduate student um and even uh, yeah even as an undergrad i was aware of various um sort of artistic and theatrical traditions in the Caribbean, in Latin America, um, where people were experimenting with um, sort of Greek theater, ancient Greek theater in sort of radical and experimental ways. And um, I'd never really come across many studies of this kind of work. Um, and I've always wanted to kind of work you know, so I've always wanted to sort of address and study these, um, these plays, especially from my perspective or from my training as a sort of, let's say, a classical philologist, as someone who is an expert um, and has research expertise in ancient drama, um, I was always intrigued with sort of these sort of neglected Um, let's say these plays in all these different areas. And so I initially, so, I mean, now, I mean, obviously I've I've now worked with someone like Luis Alfaro, but he's someone who's obviously working with Latinx communities in the United States. But my initial, um, I guess I was initially um, attracted or or sort of drawn to um, plays from Cuba, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And a lot of these sort of mid 20th century plays um, were you know, sort of playwrights are doing something slightly different with these players, they seem to be experimenting with these plays in, 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 in novel ways. So just to give you an example. Um, there was there's a play called Electra Garrigo, which is a, a version of Sophocles' Electra that um, premiered in Cuba in 1948, um, in which it's, it's the only play that I know, ancient or modern, um, in which uh, a version of Electra in which Agamemnon is not dead. Now, just right. think about it for a second. You're like, what? and you, you probably ask yourself, what is Electra without Agamemnon's death? Like, who is she? And that's exactly what the play explores. Who is Orestes? Orestes never left because his dad never died. Uh, I mean, there's obviously in, in the course of that play, I mean, there is an Augustus figure and Clytemnestra has carried on with him, but there's a real sense of in which Agamemnon, who is on stage in this play, he kind of, kind of laments the fact that he's overlived, and this is sort of using a term that um, someone, Emily Wilson, has um, explored in her work. Um, like what happens when, you know, tragic characters in a way have these sort of foundational narratives, they have a script before them. Um, and this is the case also sort of in modern adaptations when people start sort of experimenting with these mythical narratives. So what happens when you fundamentally sort of rewrite those roles um, and Agamemnon never died. <laughs> um, so I, so this was one of the many plays that I, that I had been aware of. Um, and as far as I knew, I mean, back then, I mean, they, these plays have been now, there, there is some work on these plays now, but I wanted to kind of include these plays and within these larger narratives about the afterlife of Greek drama, which to, in my mind was, or just in general, and it still is. I mean, there have been stories that are about Western Europe and, you know, so when you think about, like, you know, the after the modern laughter, life of Greek drama, I mean, people in the 20th century, people always talk about a you know, they talk about all these sort of, you know, adaptations in France and Germany and, you know, in Britain, I mean, of course, in this yep. country, there's um, there, there's a long um, history and tradition of uh, production, say at the national theater and ways in which Greek drama has shaped um, sort of British theatrical tradition um, in modern times. So I wanted to kind of, I, I thought, that we needed to look at these other areas and sort of kind of incorporate, um, yeah, we basically incorporate these into these wider narratives about the alleged, you know, because the Greek drama is always sold as universal, right? <laughs> but we're always telling the same old stories and uh, about its afterlife and sort of tracing the same old paths, you know, sort of the afterlife of Greek drama in the same old places. So I kind of wanted to see what, you know, Greek drama looked like in Cuba.
0: <laughs> and then just just to point out to our viewers who, who may not know, I mean. Greek drama in Cuba is is certainly not a sort of abstract con- concept obviously the Jose Triana, Madeira in the, uh, was it Madeira in the mirror, the mirror. Yep. yeah the 1960 version it was banned, as soon as it was performed it was you know, one of the first things performed after the Cuban revolution. It, 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 you know, it was used as a symbol for freedom post-revolution. Yes, let me
1: correct you, <laughs> that oh, one was sure. not, banned. it was the electro one. So the electro oh, one, right, okay. from 1948, essentially when, when, the, and as I said, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, if you you know, anyone who's interested in theater listening to this, you know, imagining a play where I you know, an electro play where Agamemnon is still alive, like you're like, wow, how interesting. And, but, but the people who saw it in 1948 in Cuba thought it was, I mean, in fact, what it, it's, it was described by one critic as a gob of spit aimed at Olympus and people walked out, it was banned, um, Virgilio Piñera had to go to Argentina. He, and he came back um, basically in 1958 when um, Fidel Castro and sort of in the, in the start of the Cuban revolution because that play um, then became a symbol for the Cuban revolution, because it's a play in which both Orestes and Electra kill off their parents. So it's about, (laughs) you can think about symbolically, um, the younger generation, you know, sort of doing away with the old. And that play really did spark, you know, an interest in these, in in other theatrical adaptations, which blended Hellenic and Cuban, of which Jose Triana's Medea was one. So he followed in the aftermath, or he followed in the footsteps of Pinera. Um, so there's so there are, again. So you can tell a really amazing story about um, revolutionary Cuba through Greek tragedy, um, and that to me is incredible. Um, and it was a story that I think you know more people needed to hear. So I started sort of dabbling with that, um, and yeah, and then I mean, eventually I ended up sort of also looking into other parts in Latin America. Um, I mean, for me, it's always been very important to connect. Um, in 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 you know, the academic world can be very small. Um, and luckily, over the last few years, um, in a way, there's been more travel and there's been a lot of opportunities um, to get to know colleagues from other um, from other countries. And I uh, Brazil is a, is a place where there's a lot of classics happening. Um, interestingly, there's a lot of things happening there. And I got to know several colleagues through speci- initially through Greek drama, because there's a lot of also really fascinating adaptations of Greek drama happen- that happened there. Um, there was also, yeah, some, some of them banned. <laughs> there, there was a, a, a play of uh, of Medea, actually, we can talk about that later, um, from, that was done by, it was Agostino Laval, um, it was uh, called Alendo Rio, which is um, Beyond the River, Medea, which is a play that was, that came out of the um, Black Experimental Theater in Rio um, from the, um, that was, it was active from, from the 1940s to the 1960s. But that play um, basically took the Medea story and kind of plunked it into 17th century Brazil in the context of this, you know, the transatlantic slave yeah. trade. And Medea yeah. was someone who was, um, anyway, so so there's all so that's just another example of all, all the many ways in there which there will be um, for sure trans- another
0: podcast just to everyone yeah. listening about specifically uh, Medea and her positioning within uh, Latin America and yes. its fantastic history of, of using Greek drama because as we're hearing, you know, it's so integral in the story that we don't don't hear. So I just thought I'd uh, put. Po- po- no, me. no, thank it's you, thank really you for that.
1: Me. But just to say yeah. that essentially there is a lot of story. There's a lot of sort of. Um, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of um, sort of. Uh, There there was a lot of things to look at, and so that led to collaborations with colleagues from Brazil. So this is how I ended up on the editorial board of some of their journals, because it's very important, again, to be aware of sort of power relations, even in the academic world um, and think about, um, you know, yeah, publication, think about the ways disciplines are formed. So for me, it's always been very important to be able to sort of to, to have to be in dialogue with as many people as possible. Um, from as many places as possible and it's been a real joy to collaborate with the folks from lots of places um, beyond the UK and the US.
0: I think that's so and obviously something that that, that sort of we, we strive to do and, and to think about and talk about but specifically then looking at the, the effect and obviously seeing the strong political um, implications of these plays certainly of Alfaro's work, as I said to anyone who looks into it, there is no way to, to avoid a deep uh, political awareness of very much 2020, 2021. I was talking to uh, someone the other day thinking about the current crisis at the border is in a way its own Medea problem, though their mothers aren't killing their children, they're sending them unaccompanied uh, to the border in, in a sort of an own Medea context. We're seeing constantly how um, what is happening today is is in a way he hasn't changed in 2600 years, which is petrifying to think about, but also interesting to give this context, but thinking about obviously the happenings of the last year, but generally the work that you've been doing uh, with, with these dramas in this revolutionary way. What, what are your sort of feelings currently, not just about the positioning of the classical field and in, in this global conversation, hopefully now, about race and relations to both these stories and and, and our placement within society as a whole, but also just outside of the academic world and seeing, as I'm sure you have with the Alfaro plays, the effect and the potential of these conversations outside, outside of just, you know, the lecture room. Uh, what have you been sort of, uh, it doesn't have to be a specific question, what is your, your reaction to 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 what's been going on, both I'm sure negatively and positively.
1: Well, I don't even know if I can <laughs> how to answer that. I mean, there's, I have so many thoughts about everything. I mean, I've, I mean, are you asking what my thoughts are initially about sort of the, the the way the world is right now politically, or the way the world, some of these sort of major issues, how I, think... I can contribute to some of these major issues going on, like migration and. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, that, is, that is very much an interesting question. I think, I, I
0: think for us, it's just interesting, because I suppose, obviously, I've, I've, I've read your, your Alfaro book, and, and seeing how deep uh, the comments he's making are within the play on things like immigration and belonging. And obviously, you know, very much New York born, I'm sure you've been very connected to what's been happening. I know your family uh, are obviously over there in the States, uh, over what's been happening over the last year. It's it, I don't know, I'm just sort of yeah. Giving you a space to talk about whatever you'd like to yeah, say. I
1: mean, I just think the, the only thing I can offer is that, I mean, especially when I when I first started working on Alfaro, to me, it was incredibly energizing to be working on some, you know, on, on plays, obviously, obviously that are contemporary that are now but that are addressing particular political issues um, that are that you know that still res- that, that are still essentially going on right now, and so it was incredibly energizing. Um, I'm not to say I mean obviously there there are ways in which I've always thought you know my work um, in classics has been important, but I really felt that this is. Um, crucial. I mean, he's, you know, sort of Alfaro Luis is giving voice to all these people and to these experiences and putting it in the heart of these sort of the American cultural imaginary and it's really powerful for him, you know, for him to be doing these, um, you know, Chicanx adaptations of Greek tragedy and putting it on mainstream theaters um, and basically kind of illustrating the ways, you know, these are stories that are rarely ever told. Um, in, or I mean, you know, the, the, we can think of generally about sort of the North American cultural imaginary and the types of stories that we always get to, you know, think and see, or, so let's say if about a place like Los Angeles, you know, like LA. Um, a lot of, you know, the plays that he's working on are, um, well, the, the published versions were um, all plays that are centered and are, are about LA. And he's telling the kinds of stories um, that you rarely ever get to see on sort of on television or, you know, these films, these Hollywood films. Um, and and it they deal with, you know, sort of the reality of many marginalized communities. Um, I mean, I grew up. I mean, I'm from New York, um, and I mean, I'm you know, I you know, New York. I mean, the, let's just say the ethnic makeup, and especially in terms of the Latinx population, is, is different. Um, most people from the East Coast, or you know, say a lot of places like New York, like in New York, are, um, are from you know the from the Caribbean. There's a lot of Dominicans. There's Puerto Ricans. There's Cubans, um, and um, the particular the particular sort of Chicanx Dimension that Luis is exploring, you know, there, there is, there is a particularity about that experience in LA, but there's a lot of it that is quite universal to other um, Latinx communities. Um, you know, bilingualism, or, 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 or the lack thereof. You know, sort of situ- being situated between two cultures. Um, between English and Spanish, between sort of all these generations, Catholicism, there's all these things that are quite universal. Um, and so coming across those plays for me was, I mean, obviously they spoke to me and they spoke to the experience that I I, I had also growing up in the U.S. I mean, I grew up in the Bronx. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, I know, <laughs> you know, where, where I, there was one place where I lived, there was a lot of gang you know violence and crime. And so sort of seeing that, um, obviously, on stage, but seeing that also through the lens of Greek tragedy um, was was really powerful for me. Um, And it's not just about um, putting those experiences or injecting those experiences into the American cultural imaginary. It's also about sort of challenging our perceptions of, of the ancient Greek themselves. Right. I mean, when we think about you know ancient Greek characters, I mean, and this is one funny thing. Students always talk about, oh yes, we're talking about these royal families and these nobles, and but it's interesting for us to think about, um, I guess, how much value or how much you know sort of what, yeah, w- what identities we assign onto these characters as well, um, and sort of seeing a version of sort of Electra, you know, Electra living in you know in a barrio, <laughs> seeing Medea as a seamstress. I mean, that's also quite a powerful thing, I think. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's it, 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 working on this stuff just felt, I mean, again, it was energizing because it, it felt important. Um, and obviously there are lots of ways as an academic that you can study things like migration. You can obviously study it you know, through policy and sort of through more sort of straightforward manner. But I do think there's something incredible about the theater and about being able to reach people um, you know, diverse in multiple audiences, not just, you know, folks who are, who know everything about Greek mythical narratives and who know the backstory of Oedipus and Medea, um, but other people who don't as well. I mean, these stories also speak, and, and, and this is what I also really enjoy about um, working on Luis Alfaro. I mean, he's always made clear that he is interested in reaching out to all kinds of communities and making um, all these things, you know, uh, available to lots of, you know, to, to you know, wide and diverse publics. Um, and it's and, and, and in the U.S., I think, and in the U.K., I mean, the Greeks are elite material. Um, if you think about a lot of theatrical traditions, um, Greek drama is part of an elite tradition. And so, you know, democratizing it or making it more widely available um, is something that I I think it's important. And I think it's, it's something that, I mean, uh, you know, obviously theaters at, at the moment because of COVID are suffering in lots of different ways, but I just think it's always a good thing to think about, um, you know, diversifying your public and making these stories and making theater more accessible um, to as many people as possible.
0: Certainly something that as you well know, we're trying to do, and it's so refreshing uh, for us to, to have someone obviously with this kind of experience on our team, but also to, to feel And we always, I think Fran and I try to be really careful in in recognizing this, being part of what is such a big Tradition and such a powerful tradition of using, even just if you look at the tradition of Medea herself, using her but Greek tragedy as a way to comment on things, obviously, with Chameleon and, and our adaptation together. I mean, Rosa is uh, our script editor and our, and our dramaturg, and extremely key to, to talking about these things within obviously her own experiences and within the experiences that we explore in our play of sort of diaspora. I know the podcast isn't about Medea, so I won't start rattling on, but um, it, it, it's just always so refreshing, and I hope that. Uh, uh, people listening are sort of refreshed by the, the, the relevance and the power of that relevance of this kind of work, not just in academic circles and not just in theatrical circles, but really to tell the stories of people who, who have a right to enjoy and be connected to and part of this world, this universe and this incredible artistic space as, as anyone else and as, as those who have been so privileged to hold on to it themselves for so long. Um, and it's so refreshing to hear to hear your work on it and, and hear how how relevant it is. And just sitting here listening to you speak, it's such a joy to to be reminded of that as we work on it. Uh, and to be reminded that it can have real life implications. It can really speak to people personally and and, and share. Uh, and share experiences through stage, through the work, through through something that is somehow two and a half thousand years old that is relevant to someone's experience right now, right here today. Uh, I agree. With that, I think uh, somehow it has been 35 minutes. Um, Wow. Yeah, I know it's gone super quickly, but uh, Rosa, we can't thank you enough for all the work that you you do for us and the help that, that you give us. And we're so glad to have your perspective On the show and as I said everyone listening certainly watch this space there's going to be if I can rope Rosa into yet another one or two podcasts there's going to be a really interesting discussion about really getting into the history of uh, Latin America, South America and the classics and then more particularly perhaps about the the crossover between that and the American experience in plays like that of Alfaro so do keep your eyes um, peeled for those in the next couple of months and
1: Rosa thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome thank you for having me.